Hi, this is Andrew, and this is Keynote, the daily now.tv chat show with some of the world's leading thinkers and writers. Hello, everybody. It is Friday, November the 10th, 2023. Uh, a couple of years ago, we did a show with the very distinguished British historian Richard Overy asking whether World War II had ended yet. He's the author of a, a major history, Blood and Ruins, The Last Imperial War, 1931 to 1945. It seems as if, though, the war hasn't ended, even if we're in November 2023. It remains all around us. It was such a monumental event. Uh, yesterday was uh, the anniversary of Kristallnacht, um, and as the New York Times suggests, Germany remembers Kristallnacht at a, a fraught moment. That might be a, a euphemism for our particular moment. Um, the war is all around us. It's all around us in the Middle East as well. Uh, in Germany, uh, there's all sorts of debates about what you can and can't say. Uh, never again, uh, apparently, the uh, the memories of Kristallnacht um, reminded people. But one wonders, uh, with the reappearance of anti-Semitism in the United States, uh, Islam Islamophobia in Europe, and of course the images from Gaza of refugees and suffering, uh, whether we haven't really forgotten any of this or whether we've chosen to forgotten about this. Uh, one man who's all too familiar with the Second World War, its memories, its meaning, is my guest today. Neil Lockery is a prolific historian and writer on the Second World War. He's written all sorts of interesting books, uh, not only actually on the Second World War, but on the Arab-Israeli conflict and on Israel. He has a new book out uh, today, Cashing Out, The Flight of Nazi Treasure, 1945 to 1948. And he's also the author of a book, one of, uh, one of the major biographies of Benjamin Netanyahu, The Resistible Rise of Benjamin Netanyahu, uh, which came out a few years ago. Neil is joining us from Portugal, from the Algarve. Neil, has World War II ended yet? I, I'm sure you're all too familiar with uh, Richard Overy's work. Hey, yes, I am. And it's a good question. And the simple answer is no. There are a number of issues which I cover in my latest book, uh, which are unfinished history, which in many ways makes them very interesting. And the two major issues which I sort of explore in the book are Nazi gold, and looted art, um, or looted treasure, I should say. And both of these issues really carry on into the present day. I mean, if, if I can just give you, throw in a kind of rough figure at the start here, um, in World War II, round about, the Allies estimated, round about 20% of all European art was looted by the Germans. Um, today, in 2023, we don't have an exact figure as to how much of this art is still missing, but we think it round about 100,000 pieces of art. And many of those works are incredibly uh, significant uh, works from, from major artists of the day or artists who became e extremely, extremely important um, uh, throughout time. 
and therefore it's very very significant and nazi gold as well nazi gold for those of those of you of viewers who don't know about nazi gold nazi gold was essentially the gold looted from the countries that germany occupied um so i'm talking about uh, countries in the east but uh certainly from 1940 onwards from the countries in western europe the low countries poland belgium uh and uh, france as well and this gold was used by the germans to pay for goods and services trading with the neutral countries and specifically countries like sweden uh like portugal like spain um like argentina and the gold was effectively you know used to pay for these services and on top of that sadly we have the gold from the jewish victims of the holocaust as well yeah. melted down gold teeth wedding bands um smelted down and turned into gold bars and um much of this gold certainly in terms of portugal the country where i'm speaking to you today is still in portugal it hasn't been handed back after the war the portuguese only gave back four tons of gold they cut a deal with the with the americans essentially over continued american access to an air base in the portuguese azores islands in the middle of the atlantic ocean vital for the cold war and the american garrison buildup in, in germany also vital in world war ii as well for for d-day and so portugal is still a very gold rich country and this gold of course is of disputed origins and yeah that's particularly chilling um uh, you've um you've written extensively on so-called neutral countries during the second world war speaking of um portugal you wrote a best-selling book lisbon war in the shadows of the city of light uh, 1939 to 1945 you also wrote a book about uh brazil the fortunes of war world war ii and the making of modern brazil brazil and portugal of course quote unquote were neutral in the war so was switzerland so was sweden but when one thinks of these neutral countries one sometimes thinks that these are countries that conveniently turned a blind eye to especially uh, the the behavior the, the crimes these terrible crimes against humanity and economic crimes of of of, uh, of the germans is there some truth to that could one really be neutral in this war neil yeah it's a very good question and let me let me start by making something absolutely clear which i think is really important for your viewers brazil was a neutral country until 1942. after 1942 following attacks on brazil on Brazilian shipping by uh, German U-boats. Brazil joined the uh, Allies. And indeed, in 1944, Brazilian soldiers fought and died in Italy, uh, pushing the Germans out of Italy. And something that's not very much known about Italy and the Italian front in the war was that the first German surrender in Italy was given to a Brazilian general. And Brazilians, as I said, you know, fought and died in the snow. Uh, okay, so, uh, you know, I, I take your point, and I apologize um, for misunderstanding uh, Brazil. But more broadly, um, this idea of neutrality, the Swedes in particular, as a wealthy, industrialized country, have, have got yeah. a huge amount of um, 
negative publicity on this, uh, and there's still a degree of guilt in Sweden. Uh, your book, Cashing Out the Flight of Nazi Treasure, is did most of it flee through these so-called neutral countries like Sweden? And yeah, abs and absolutely. Yeah, especially towards the end of the war. The, the, this is where a lot of the treasure came out of. It came out of Iberia, Portugal and Spain to South America and, it and Argentina and even through Brazil. It came out of Sweden. Usually from Sweden, it went to Bilbao, which was a three port, an open port in the north of Spain in the Basque land. And from there on to Argentina, I mean, we know this because of several shipments were actually stopped and opened and looted arc recovered, although not as much as we sort of would hope for. But if I can just return to, to, to your original question here, you asked me how much the neutral countries knew was going on in World War II. And the answer is they knew exactly what was going on. Their diplomats in Berlin were telling them exactly. We have documentary evidence here that, for example, the Portuguese and the Swedes knew exactly about the, the Holocaust. They knew about um, the kind of policies that the Nazis were, were following. So this, isn't, this can't be said in any way that the neutrals, in retrospect, could turn around and say, well, sorry, we didn't know what was going on here. And we just continued to trade with the Germans. You know, there is conclusive proof that they absolutely did know what was going on. And towards the end of the war, when you know Nazis were preparing their escape, and I would say probably from D-Day onwards, certainly from January forty-five onwards, these neutral countries were certainly complicit in helping many Nazis escape. We're speaking with one of Britain's leading historians on World War II, Neil Lockery. He has a new book out, Cashing Out, a book about the flight of Nazi treasure after the war. Neil, what about the politics? Um, we, um, we're all too familiar with the Spanish Civil War and the rise to power of Franco. What about in, in Portugal? As I said, you've written a book and, and you're an expert. You're even talking to me now from Portugal. Was there uh, uh, a, a, a similar kind of right-wing dictatorship in Portugal? Or was Portugal actually democratic during the Second World War? Who, who is responsible? Who's guilty for turning this terrible blind eye? Well, Portugal was led at the time by an authoritarian regime, which was um, had it at, at its head a man called Antonio de Oliveira Salazar. He ruled Portugal from 1933 until 1968, when a so he was he was to put it crudely, he was their Franco. I I would. I would differ with your analysis. I would say he was much smarter than Franco. Uh, Franco actually described Salazar rather flattering, rather flatteringly as the as the most impressive politician he'd ever met. Um, Salazar was he was actually came from a very peasant, poor background in the interior of Portugal. He wasn't from the elites within the country, but he was a man who was able to sort of wheel and deal uh, with the diplomats and with the great powers of the day, specifically United States, Britain, and France. And he played a pretty astute hand in, in World War II for, for Portugal. The country, as I said, made a fortune uh, trading with the Nazis. It traded in Wolfram, uh, tungsten, which was a vital ore for the German uh, armaments industry, which they simply couldn't have functioned uh, without Portuguese Wolfram. And he was still able to, to sort of keep the Allies on side as well. 
Um, people speculate in Portuguese history and Portuguese history historians speculate as to the basic question, which is a bit superficial, but was, was he pro-Nazi or, or was he pro-Allied? I think he was just simply pro-Portugal. Um, and he navigated neutrality with Portugal, probably in the first part of the war, up until Operation Torch in December 19, 1942, as being more pro-German. After Operation Torch was successful from the start of 1943 onwards, and an Allied victory looked more likely, he navigated more to the to the Allied side. But certainly a very astute, fascinating character, uh, and one in who was really a sort of academic rather than the sort of more militarist, populist Franco, Francisco Franco. In well, what about the politics in, in in Portugal? I'm guessing that given Portuguese historic relations, good relations with with Britain, that there was a lot of pressure. What about the church and the left? There must have been pressures on both sides to either uh, yeah, either disengage or become involved. Well, Portugal has had an alliance. It's the oldest remaining diplomatic alliance in history, dating back to 1373 with Great Britain. And that alliance, of course, calls for, you know, if attacked, the other country will, will come to will declare war and whoever has declared war on that country. So in theory, Portugal should have declared war on the Germans at the start of World War II, but the British allowed the Portugal to remain neutral, essentially because Portugal didn't have the weapons to defend itself uh, at the start of the war. And one of the major reasons for this was the refusal of Britain to supply it with weapons. There was a shortage of weaponry in, in the United Kingdom right there leading up to World War II. That's another issue. Um, but that's why Portugal was essentially allowed to, to remain neutral and the Germans agreed to this neutrality, providing that they didn't lean towards their oldest ally, um, Great Britain. So you have that, that sort of aspect. And, and certainly the other two things you mentioned, I think, are very important. Uh, Salazar was very close to the Catholic Church. Indeed, his, his roommate at university in the university city of uh, uh, Coimbra in, in the center of Portugal actually became head of the Catholic Church and so these two sort of very central figures to Portuguese society I mean and the Catholic Church was enormously powerful I mean at one point there was a sort of church for almost every 28 people in the country it was you know it was it was that central to the life of of both rural and urban Portugal the opposition in Portugal were were the far left, were the communists, um, pro-Soviet Union, Bolsheviks, and this, of course, you know, was a was a major issue that Salazar spent much of his time uh, trying to repress this sort of opposition that came uh, from some of the satellite towns around Lisbon and and rural parts of Portugal, um, such as um, the Alentejo and other rural areas here. Neil, well. um, I'm guessing that there wasn't a large Jewish community in Portugal, but of course, many of the Jews of Portugal and Spain were the ones who were thrown out in the, what, the 15th, 16th centuries, and the ones who ended Correct. up in Poland and Ukraine and Russia and Germany were murdered by the Nazis. Was there any sense of that history within Portugal, of that tragic element? Well, the Inquisition is, is, is another issue. 
all together and we need to make somewhat distinctions between the Spanish and Portuguese Inquisition to some extent, but let's not go down that road because that's a, that's a completely different route. Portugal believed that it had a very positive Jewish um, record during World War II. However, um, prior to the war, Salazar um, produced a, thir- a circular, which was a piece of legislation, number 13, which effectively banned Jews from entering Portugal. However, that was somewhat put to the side as Portugal accepted Jewish refugees who were fleeing uh, German-occupied Europe during the war, and thousands upon thousands of refugees came through Lisbon uh, on their way either to the United States of America uh, or, or, to, or to other places. Um, now, the one proviso they had, of course, in being allowed to enter Portugal was that they had letters of transit. And those of you who've seen the film Casablanca will know what their letters of transit are. Mm. And that these letters of transit had an exit visa. That, that, that in effect that they had travel documents to carry on and that they would not be allowed to remain in Portugal on a semi or permanent basis. We are speaking with Neil uh, Lockery, the author of Cashing Out, a very important new book about the flight of Nazi treasure, 1945 to 1948. I want to thank uh, Liberties, an excellent new quarterly, for bringing us this show. Quarterly Journal of Culture and Politics. It's going to run short piece about Liberties, and then we'll be back with Neil to talk more about this flight of Nazi treasure. I want to talk about the Swedes and the Swiss and the other so-called neutral powers and their responsibility for this uh tragedy upon tragedy so be back in a second don't go away anyone beyond the news the noise there is nuance insight liberties it's not just a journal of ideas it's a meteor of intelligent substance it's the place to be for engaged citizens politics opinion substance liberties is a triumph for freedom of thought a quarterly of urgency of cultural exploration of intellectual delight, of immaculate prose. It's invaluable. Subscribe now or find Liberties at your favorite bookseller. It's invaliable, but you can subscribe, libertiesjournal.com. We are speaking with Neil Lockery, one of Britain's leading World War II historians, as well as an expert on the current Middle East. He has a new book out, Cashing Out. And Neil, before uh, the break, we talked about the Portuguese responsibility for all this hidden uh, for this flight of nazi treasure and portugal as a quote-unquote neutral power what about sweden and and switzerland we did a show recently on some polish diplomats in switzerland who organized um some fake paraguayan passports for a few thousand jews and they they saved their life um the Swiss, though, of course, haven't always come out of the Second World War very well either, like like the Swedes. Are they similar, both wealthy countries, both defiantly neutral and yet sort of implicit, to me at least, uh, on the side of the Germans by not getting involved in the war? Yeah. Um, Winston Churchill, who knew a thing or two about World War II, uh, argued that the worst example of the neutrals were the Swedes. And the Swedes effectively sold iron ore and other things with the Nazis. 
Swedish um, businessmen traded openly with the Nazis prior to the war uh, and during the war. And Sweden made a fortune from trading with the Germans. Um, there were other aspects to Swedish neutrality as well that I, that, that I said that I found very troubling. Um, I, I think that there were certainly very close connections between some Swedish industrialists and German intelligence. The head of German intelligence was a man who features heavily in my book called Walter Schellingberg. And he developed um, effectively Nazi connections with, with Sweden. He, he was so, so, so sure of the strengths of these connections that he didn't really bother to set up any espionage networks in Sweden because he argued that ties were, were good enough anyway. What was the need for sort of espionage networks? The only sort of German networks that operated in Sweden were counter-espionage activities against the British and after 1941, the, the Americans um, as well. I think Sweden's record, to be quite frank, in World War II was, was nothing much short of appalling. And their post-war record was equally difficult to stomach. Um, they promised a lot to Operation Safe Haven, which was set up by the Allies in 1944 to deal with uh, Nazi war criminals, German assets in neutral countries, and also looted art and treasure. But they really didn't, didn't provide very much. And I think much of the Swedish post-war economic miracle was largely funded with, with, with Nazi money from trading. That's astonishing. With... And in very vivid contrast, of course, to what happens in Norway and Denmark and even Finland. Um, well, abso absolutely. But, but you're, talking, you're talking here about countries that were occupied at different times. I mean, you know, Norway occupied, Denmark occupied, and their experience in World War II was, was, was completely different to, to that of Sweden. I mean, the, the Germans sort of, if you're asking me for a sort of brief sort of statement on Sweden, the, the Germans didn't feel any need to threaten Sweden because this, the Swedes cooperated so well. And Switzerland, was that equally? As Switzerland, I mean, Switzerland, um, Switzerland, I kind of describe in my head as smile and promise a lot, but deliver absolutely nothing to the Allies. And a Sweden, a Swiss, Switzerland, of course, benefited enormously in World War II uh, in trading with, with the Germans. Its, its secrecy laws connected to its banking and financial services were, of course, heavily utilized by Nazis. And one of the, one of the great mysteries still we have is uh, how much Nazi looted art is actually being held in safe vaults in, in Switzerland. Uh, we know there's been some shift in Switzerland towards trying to open some of these vaults, but re there are, re remains big question marks over this. Switzerland also provided its financial services to help the Portuguese and Germans trade in, in gold when the amount of gold being transferred from Berlin to Lisbon became too much to move physically. The Swedes offered their services as a way of um, sort of laundering the payments through through Switzerland. And it's a country that, you know, did remarkably, remarkably well out of, out of World War II. Uh, and it's a mystery to, to me how, how many people are not actually more critical of the Swiss role. Although 
nobody not even the swiss seem to be great fans of switzerland is that fair i mean it's, it's... <laughs> yeah i mean it's it's a it's a it's a strange one but certainly certainly switzerland as i say remains very significant to this so you asked me at the start of this interview the very good question you know is world war ii finished and of course it's not and one of the unfinished aspects is you know how much nazi looted treasure is still in switzerland hidden away yeah nobody knows it, it, your analysis of switzerland doesn't surprise me sweden is another story maybe you could write a book about that i mean sweden has become this beacon of progressivism and yet it's second yeah. its behavior it both in the war and after the war as you yeah. suggest is very questionable Let, let's move Ooh. on to this uh, because there's so much to cover and i want to touch at the end neil on on your take on the middle east you've written so much about it um so in your sense of course none of this can be proved this flight of nazi treasure 1945 to 1948 how much of it is still uh still in the hands of i i guess the descendants of, of the germans who fled germany well that's a good question and that's a very difficult one to answer because of course that sadly this is a tale where we don't have any simple answers to these kind of questions because a lot of the cases particularly high profile cases of valuable highly valuable pieces of art end up in legal challenges end up in courtrooms uh, for example there was a, a case only this year whereby a a uh, famous painting by Kadinsky was sold uh, for $45 million in March of this year. And that sale, which actually went to, to the Stern family, the descendants of the Stern family, was an end of a legal process that had taken about 13 years and in which the um, uh, museum that was holding the painting, which was in Eindhoven in Holland, had refused to hand it over believing that the um looted art the art had effectively not been not been looted and here we come to another complexity that, that i think is important to highlight which is how we define looted art you know is looted art simply just something that was stolen by the germans and pounded by the germans for example the rothschild collection was impounded by the germans uh the rosenberg gallery in paris which was an enormously significant gallery paul rosenberg was the unofficial agent to picasso he also dealt with matisse um, he got out by the way in 1940 to through lisbon to the united states of america and new york where he started a new gallery but he lost much of his uh, much of his collection and that was impounded those are clear examples there are more difficult examples so however when when people actually sold their art uh, at a time when they were being subjected to Nazi persecution and they sold their art at you know kind of fire sale prices and that I think we need we need to also term as looted art but these cases are much harder legalistically uh, to, to to gain a, a ruling on because how, how do you say what a you know what is a, a market value of such a painting in in 1939 1940? etc uh, etc et and this becomes very sort of difficult to to prove legally but nonetheless you know some of these paintings that are being fought over in these kind of cases are enormously valuable 
at today's prices in 2023. What would you, I, I mean, this is a, a hugely complicated legal and I guess even some, in some senses moral issue, Neil. And, and, and in short, because we're, we're running out of time, what would you like to see happen in terms of trying to end World War II, or at least this chapter of World War II, the flight of Nazi treasure? How can justice be done most effectively? It can't be done completely, but what would you like to see happen? Well, I think, first of all, very briefly, my biggest fear is as a generation of World War II dies, my biggest fear is that this issue gets put onto the back burner and then forgotten about altogether. Next year is the 80th anniversary of, of D-Day, and you know the world is the world is is moving on. But nonetheless, I think we need to have a more legalistic rulings. I think the this year is the 25th anniversary of the 1998 New York Conference on Looted Art. Uh, which uh, the American Conference on Looted Art, which called for some kind of legalistic international framework. Uh, I think we need to revisit that and we need to, if possible, tighten up um, legal uh, people's access to, to the legal process because, of course, not everyone can afford a 13-year court process. Neil, finally, I've got to ask you this. You, as I said at the beginning, you, you've written a biography of Benjamin Netanyahu back in 2016, The Resistible Rise of Benjamin Netanyahu. You've also written extensively on the situation in, in the Middle East of the Israeli-Palestinian issue. You wrote Why Blame Israel. You wrote uh, The Difficult Road to Peace. You also wrote um, The View from the Fence, the Arab-Israeli conflict from the present to its roots. Has anything happened in the last month that surprised you? Is there anything different in terms of the narrative that's unfolding, this tragic narrative of violence and counter-violence? As a historian, well, I'm not asking you for an analysis of uh, the the day-to-day, -day, yeah. but you, you've looked at Netanyahu very carefully. You've looked at the conflict. Has anything changed between uh, no, November 2023 and September 2023? I think we are looking at a historical process here, which which we can date back to uh, around about 2006 when Hamas came to power in the Palestinian elections. And this shifted, I think, the whole debate about peace. Um, peace. Peace essentially during the 1990s, when I was a young scholar starting out, Peace was talked about as being arranged between various secular groups. In Israel, we were talking about secular parties, the Israeli Labour Party led by Yitzhak Rabin, Shimon Peres, and was in the Palestinian Authority being led by Arafat, Mahmoud Abbas, and, and, and others um, as well. And we seem to be shifting more towards a, a kind of secular Middle East. And certainly since 2005, and the Oslo process, as you know, failed and finished by 1999-2000. Uh, since 2005-2006 was the rise of Hamas, then we uh, are seeing a very different kind of, of conflict. And in many ways, we, we have been postponing, I think, which is a, a much wider conflict between Hamas and, and Israel. Clearly, one of the motives for Hamas attacks this time around was to try and uh, persuade the Arab world to take up arms against Israel. Uh, one would think that they're probably rather disappointed with, with what has transpired so far.
I mean, Hezbollah, have, while, while they have launched some attacks, have not gone to all-out war with Israel. Um, and other, other Arab states um, have been uh, trying to restrain the issue, stopping it developing into, into a regional war. But I think that the sort of Hamas-Israel conflict has really been, I'm afraid to say, a, a kind of near certainty uh, since, since the elections and Palestinian elections in 2006. And sadly, maybe the final point to make is one of the great ironies was that when Hamas was founded in 1987, Israel actually encouraged its, its founding as a kind of counterforce to the PLO. Uh, and indeed, I, I know for a fact that, you know, the Israelis, you know, even took some of the leaders of, from Hamas out of Gaza and brought them to Tel Aviv to try and discuss a kind of uh, an arrangement with Israel. Um, that backfired. Hamas um, started started to launch attacks against Israel later that year. But I mean, this is this is something that has been really um, very much on the cards uh, for a long time.